0: Hello, my name is Graham Alcott. Welcome to the very first episode ever of Beyond Busy, the show where we talk productivity, work-life balance, and happiness and success. So this is Series One, Episode One, and I'm sat in my shed in Brighton in the UK, and it's uh, been a lovely sunny day today. It's spring, really feels like it's it's either here or it's really pushing through, and uh, it really feels like bringing with it is a change in in the rhythm of how I work. So I've spent most of the first couple of months of the year very down in the weeds working in my business, Think Productive, uh, covering a couple of client gigs and then fixing and patching up some systems that were a little bit broken and doing a lot of detail work, which is not really my, it's not really what I love to do. I can do it, but I don't enjoy it very much. And I've really felt like I've had to, to plod through over the last uh, last few weeks. But with spring in the air, like it really feels like that rhythm is changing for me now. It feels like I'm at the end of that little cycle, end of that little process. And spring and summer is going to be all about hunkering down into this particular project of Beyond Busy. And really what this is about is recognising that just, just away from the subject of productivity, lots of people, even though they're productive, still feel like they're just caught on that hamster wheel. And there's just always going to be more to do and however productive we are it still feels like we're feeling guilty about that or it still feels like we're unable to put those things down and really achieve the work-life balance or achieve that holy grail of happiness. So really this is going to be my exploration of those issues and the the interconnectedness of those different themes. So loads of time in the business with Think Productive this year so far. I also had this um, TV thing Uh, the ITV Tonight program uh, which featured me uh, quite heavily and was it was honestly the one thing I've ever done where there was such a direct correlation between that thing going out and then the phone in the Think Productive office just going a bit crazy with lots of people you know wanting to sign us up for workshops and all the rest of it so really really good publicity and just a really enjoyable thing to do. I've always been very skeptical and very mistrusting of TV people and I have to say the ITV tonight program guys were just so lovely. I really felt like I was a, a partner on making that show and it was it was a lot of fun to do. And then last week I ended up I was last week was really exhausting. It was one of those weeks where I really felt like my ideal listener for this show right so like I suppose the ideal listener for this show is someone who feels really busy and fra- and frazzled and has a lot on their plates and that kind of felt like me last week I was running around on trains a lot and uh, did a couple of uh, quite big client gigs and various other things and then on Friday I had to retake my CBT motorbike test which is a thing you have to do every every two years in order to ride a motorbike wearing L plates and uh, the alternative is spending five or six days doing a really long test so I tend to go for I'll just keep renewing this every two year thing and I don't mind wearing our plates because I'm not that bothered about my street cred so uh, when I did that when I did it two years ago in London the guy uh, had me you know, like you do this bit at the beginning where you sort of do figures of eights through cones on a school playground and he made me do that bit and then he was just like okay, I don't need to see you ride right on the road. I'm just going to sign you off now. And it was great because I, I went home by about 12. And then these guys last week, I was kind of really hoping for a similar day. I was so tired. And I got there and bless them, they were just the most diligent people ever. So I think I spent as long on this one just getting the safety briefing about what kind of back protectors to wear and all the stuff as I did in London, actually doing the whole thing. So it was a long day. I was there from 8.30 until about 5.30. And, you know, I have to say it was quite enjoyable, even though I've done it a few times before. They they were lovely people. I could have done with them just doing it a bit quicker, to be honest. But that was just because I was tired. But it was just really cold. So I really felt by Friday evening that I was just completely whacked and just very, very tired. So this week is a new week. And really, it's the week to start throwing out the first episode of Beyond Busy and I've done a lot of work today on the structuring of the episodes and looking at some of the future guests and the scheduling and all that sort of stuff so it really feels like it's a new season it's a new project and I'm really getting stuck in so welcome to Beyond Busy and this first episode is Nancy Reynolds she is the CEO and founder of a company called Advantage Spring and she's also the author of a book called We Have a Deal which has just come out in the UK And I dare say, if you go through Amazon, you can probably find it around the world as well. Uh, I know it's coming out in the US in the next couple of months. I think it should be out by about May 2016, I think, in the US. Uh, And probably, you know, around the rest of the world as well. So um, she is someone I've known for a long time. She is someone who is very busy, very full on in the work that she does. She's very, very driven, laser-like focus on what she does, and um, has had a really interesting career. So she's been a barrister. She's been a commercial director for a FTSE 100 company. She's worked in the public sector. And her current incarnation, if you like, around negotiation skills, uh, she's become a columnist for The Guardian. She's written for The Financial Times. She works with the UN. Just really, really, you know, full on and driven and just a very passionate person in everything she does. I've known Natalie for for many years. We met as students and volunteered on this program called kids adventure which gets a little mentioned during the show looking back on that thing now we were probably 20 and the two of us were were in charge of about 15 kids from various troubled backgrounds from inner city birmingham and you know referred through social services about 15 volunteers a couple of minibuses big box of haribo sweets and it's like what could possibly go wrong? right? So, Looking back on it, it feels weird that we had such a level of responsibility. And I think if you if you here's the thing, if you're a student or if you're looking to get or, or increase your leadership skills in any way, there's one of the fastest ways that you can do that is to look into volunteering and look into some of the things that you can actually be involved in actually delivering on and having responsibility for and there's just no substitute for the real experience of actually being in charge of this this whole project and making sure it goes well financially the well-being of the people all that sort of stuff so it was a hugely rewarding thing to be involved in and certainly something that taught me a lot and i'm sure natalie would say the same Um, but anyway let's get on with the first episode so this is my conversation taped a couple of weeks ago with nasi reynolds of advantage spring Tell me first of all about like the business and um, what you, how you help organisations around negotiation.
1: Okay, so um, so I, yeah, I'm the founder and CEO of Advantage Spring. We are a specialist negotiation training firm. So what that means in reality is we have a series of different workshops. Um, focusing on increasing confidence of individuals when they negotiate, but also addressing commerciality. So by that I mean we help boost profit margin for firms by getting their teams to negotiate um, better, more effectively, uh, in a more creative way. Um, so we work with all sorts of different corporates, big law firms, big banks, you know, manufacturers, retailers, media companies. Um, and every workshop will have a slightly different feel, but there are certain golden threads that run through how negotiation works. That we yeah. try and get people to understand. We demystify it, really. Okay.
0: Do you think you find when you first, when it, when a company first approaches you and says, "Bring us in." Are they, like, shit scared because they've got to negotiate with the negotiation people? Does that get, like, really meta? Um,
1: w- what's, what's always quite funny is people will bring us in and they know they need to work on their negotiation capability. I think most savvy businesses recognise that they will be losing a lot of money and damaging a lot of relationships through poor negotiation. Yeah. So they get that. But you can see then when it gets to the point of actually we want to book some workshops, their whole body language changes and you can see they're dreading then that yeah. conversation about fee. And so I'll actually try and make it easier for people and say, look, nobody likes negotiating with the negotiator, yeah. so let's talk about it in a grown-up way. Okay. And, and we do acknowledge that people do feel uncomfortable. That's one of our big things, that people generally feel uncomfortable negotiating. So if we're trying to build a relationship with a client, we will acknowledge that. and and make sure that they can have a a sensible conversation with us.
0: And I've just got your book and haven't read it yet, but like from what I know of you and having talked to you about it before, I kind of feel like there's some real parallels between the stuff that I do around helping people when they're procrastinating and the stuff that you do around negotiation, because ultimately it's all lizard brain stuff, right? It's that whole kind of, you know, the way, the stories we tell ourselves about these things and the way the mind Plays tricks on you and, you know, your hopes and fears and guilt and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. There, there are massive parallels. And in fact, the way the book is structured, um, I start the book by talking about common negotiation mistakes, which seems like a slightly counterintuitive place to start in a book, mm. i.e. pointing yep. out what you're doing wrong. But I think with negotiation, it's one of those skills that we do every day with our family, our friends, our peers, our colleagues, our clients, our customers. And they will all look very different. Um, but generally people fall into common traps and that is based on bad habits that have been picked up over the years, uncertainty about what they should be doing, fear of how they might come across. And so we try very hard to say, look guys, there are certain mistakes that people make and nobody's immune, actually. So you might be a new graduate with zero work experience. You will make the same mistakes as your future CEO. Mm. It's just you're doing it in a different setting.
0: I Also, just before we get into talking about how you negotiate through your life, hey, there's a nice little smooth <laughs> um, Before we get into that, I'd love to talk to you a little bit about um, women in negotiation. And that's a particular... Thing again, I think that you're you, you you've had a lot of success in getting that message out there and getting national press around that. So just just talk about that a little bit.
1: Yeah. So the gender and negotiation thing is is of huge interest to me. Um, I mean, just to be clear, I mean. My day job, the company, train men and women, yeah. but but each of my team have a specific interest and mine is gender. And this has really come about from a few years ago when I was working for a now competitor and clients would routinely ask me about unconscious bias and negotiation. Mm. So, you know, I'm a big believer that people are as important as the process when it comes to negotiation. and And gender is one of those things that will impact how we perceive others and how we interact with others. And there are certain stereotypes about women as negotiators. Women experience different expectations, stereotypes and assumptions than men do in business. And so I have found, or I like to think I've found, a way of communicating to both men and women that, yes, these fairly negative stereotypes about women as negotiators do exist, But we shouldn't allow ourselves to be boxed in by them. And actually, by understanding those stereotypes, we can challenge them, push back, and be the best negotiators that we can be. What we don't do is rant. And this might sound a bit controversial, but... There are a lot of people out there who will get on stages and talk about, you know, how awful it is that women are routinely discriminated against. I'm not denying that happens in life generally, but our sessions are less of a rant Mm. and are more about saying, yeah, there's some negativity about women that ask. There's some negativity about women and, you know, the view that they might capitulate more quickly or what there's lots of them um, that are out there. But what we try and do is say, yeah, these are the stereotypes but here's how to overcome them. Yeah, This is the practical thing that you can do today to make sure that you're the best negotiator, whether you are male or female.
0: And it sort of reminds me a little bit of um, Susan Cain's book, uh, Quiet, which is all about introvert versus yeah. extrovert. And I think it feels to me like there's a lot of areas of the business world that are very macho mm-hmm. in the style and culture and the way they're set up. And that perhaps makes it more difficult for women in terms of how they negotiate, but then... By the flip side, what Susan Kane talks about in Quiet is like, actually, when when you play to an introvert's strengths, it's actually way more powerful than because it's not the norm, right? So it's like oh, a different do way you, of do you know what, thinking this, about stuff.
1: This is my big passion. You've actually really tapped into what really motivates me here, because there is this view, I think, we, we do an exercise at the start of, of masterclasses or workshops, and we'll say to people, describe how you feel when you think about negotiating, and... We'll also then say, describe or or give us a word that describes what you think negotiation is. And it's interesting because the words that often come up about how people feel about negotiating is that they feel nervous, unsure, fearful, excited. But it's always kind of a, you know, a, a, a not the norm kind of feel. However, the words that come up when we say describe negotiation all come down to winning, losing and battle. Mm. And a lot of people have this mindset that negotiation is a battle and that it's tough and it's macho and it's aggressive. And don't get me wrong, some negotiations are. um, We talk about value claim and value create negotiations. And value claim tend to be those more competitive transactional negotiations. Mm. And there is this belief that men are naturally better at the tough stuff. And that women are better at the more collaborative value-create stuff. And yet we have found, certainly, that just as many men are fearful and nervous and scared about negotiation as women are, mm. and we also talk about the fixed pie bias. So sorry to sound a bit techie there, but essentially the fixed pie bias is this belief in the negotiation world that actually people tend to think negotiation is a, a win-lose.
2: Mm. Yeah. But
1: often it's not. Often it's more long-term in nature, it's more complex, it requires creativity, you've got relationships to manage. So actually, if the stereotype holds true, women should have the you know, the edge when it comes to negotiating because actually, most of the negotiations that we do would fit into that traditional view of women who are more collaborative, empathetic, creative. Yeah, yeah. So I think there's a real issue here that whilst women are often demonized as not being able to do the tough stuff, the reality is, is I think that women's natural strengths mean that they are good all-rounders when it comes to negotiation. And I often find we have to spend a lot of time helping men deal with the tough stuff just as much because it doesn't come naturally to all guys. And I think we've got to be very careful about stereotyping in that way.
0: Completely. I think I'm much more in the sort of find the value that you can create rather than the yeah. let's fix on the house of win. You know, that's definitely my sort of style. Mm. Um, let's talk about um, the your journey really to get to where you are now, which is running your own thing and with a book just about to hit the shelves and all of that. And I know that's been a sort of two or three year journey for you. Mm-hmm. So what I'm keen to do is just get your perspective as an as a, an entrepreneur of, uh, of an emerging and growing business and just kind of um, how that interacts with the rest of your life and like why you made those decisions and stuff like that. So part of your background was Director level with FTSE 100 companies, and you've also worked in the public sector and stuff. So, um, what was the what was the motivation behind the decision to jack in being a very good director level employee and go, hey, I'm just going to have no certainty and do this all on my own? <laughs>
1: um, I mean, if you look at my history, I always say I have a really bizarre work history. You know, I I didn't kind of take a set career path. So, I, I mean, I did a law degree. Turned down the opportunity to go and specialise in tax, which now was, I know, was one of the best moves I, had, I ever made. Um, and, and, and I ended, I, I accidentally landed in the public sector. Mm. Um, and actually, that was motivated by my time running a children's charity at university, So Kids Adventure, which I know you know which about, Which we Brian. know very well, yeah. Yes, indeed. And... Um, And and that kind of allowed me to then enter into public service at at a slightly higher level than I maybe would have done as a brand new graduate. But I had a wonderful career for around 12 years working in and around local and central government and did lots of things in that time from development of legislation around antisocial behaviour, advising the mayor of London on rape, sexual assault, domestic violence, managing large enforcement teams. And I, I loved my time in public service. But started to crave a change around the time I went to night school to become a barrister. So I yeah. qualified as a barrister um, on a part-time basis. And I start that was when I started to realise that negotiation was a skill that a lot of people despised and hated and would avoid. Um, I then went to a now competitor. They headhunted me. And I spent three really great years travelling the world, training very senior-level executives in how to negotiate. Yeah. And I, I really, really loved my job. And, and I think actually the catalyst for me doing what I do now actually happened there rather than when I went to, because I went from there on to a FTSE 100 um, as a commercial director but it was whilst I was at um, my now competitor that I that I realised that actually people were interested in the, in the people side of things you know mm. negotiation isn't just a process yeah. it's about how we interact with each other it's about what motivates people to behave the way they do to each other and and that was when I got a real interest, particularly in gender and unconscious bias. And it was that firm's reluctance to do anything with that, that really made me question their way of doing things. And I was just like, do you know what? I, I think there's another way.
0: So it's that classic kind of entrepreneurial thing of there's something I can see that's broken.
1: Yeah. And I know
0: how to fix it. And, you know, it's like I've got to go and do that. Is
1: Absolutely. And, 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 you know, it's... It, for me, it, it, burnt, it started a fire in me that made me think, I think there's another way, mm. and I'd like that way to look quite different. And so um, I, I left there, um, I went on to, to work at FTSE 100, did it for a time, but realised my heart lay in doing what I'm doing now, yeah. and so took the leap.
0: And what um, do you miss about being an employee?
1: Security. Security. Um, my my upbringing was uh, one where, you know, we, finan- financially we were quite unstable. My parents divorced when I was quite young. Uh, we never had a lot of money. It was always yeah. kind of touch and go every month. And I, that's been my biggest barrier. I have a very strange relationship with money. Um, I'm not very good with it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I love it, yet I'm scared of it. And, and I, I have a lot of barriers personally, I think, to overcome around that. But can, we get, can
0: we get into that?
2: Uh, yeah, sure. So uh,
0: part of Beyond Busy is about exploring the taboos. Money is such a taboo, right? Oh. Like, people just don't want to talk about it. Mm. Uh, so let's talk about it. So uh, <laughs> you have a strange relationship with it. like, And I really I empathise with that totally in terms of that sort of growing up, being conscious of, you know, parental mm. security. And security when it comes to money is the, the story I tell myself. But, like, so tell me how you from having that view of money uh then get into the let's become an entrepreneur and and screw the security and let's just do it
1: I in a way I I still don't think I've reconciled it because I mean Mm. I I was um I've always been the main breadwinner in our house you know my husband and I met when he was working for me so I was his boss I've always earned more we've always been very comfortable with that in our house um put it this way the thing that held me back and prevented me from doing this sooner was that fear of not yeah. having a monthly paycheck I, I you know if there's one thing I have nightmares about if there's one thing that keeps me up at night it's cash flow money what if And tell I, me about it I yeah. have the same so <laughs> I lay there going what if we don't win any more clients what yeah. if this happens and and when I wake up, it's, I'm very rational again. Yeah. I, you may have heard the phrase, the hour of the wolf, yeah. which is yeah. the French concept for four in the morning, which is at four in the morning you're, you're most vulnerable to your innermost fears, and I really suffer from that. I'm routinely laying wide awake at four o'clock in the morning thinking, what if, what if, what if, and it's always about money. So I don't have an answer for it, but I, I, I know why I did it. I did it because... Even though I was earning very good money in my last role, I had security and you know, I was on a nice notice period, nice pension, all of that kind of thing. I wasn't fulfilled. I mm. wasn't doing what I loved. And I'd had a glimpse of what I'm good at. And I knew, I knew that my idea about how to deliver negotiation training, the way I knew that negotiation could be taught.
2: Yeah.
1: I it was that was so powerful that it overrode my fear. And I think also I've been very fortunate that I have a husband who's very pragmatic. Yeah. And his view was if it doesn't work out, you'll get another job. You've never right. struggled, yeah. you've never yeah. struggled getting a job before, and in fact now you've got even better transferable skills, so why would that suddenly not be the case?
2: Completely um, agree with that. And so
1: actually having him as a safety net, and I probably don't tell him this enough, but having having my husband's kind of affirmations like that has just made me realize that you know what? I'll I'll be more frustrated if I don't do it. Mm. And you know, I've just got to learn to live with that little niggly money fear that, yeah, that I will yeah, always yeah. have probably. Yeah.
0: And I was going to ask. I was actually just before you mentioned your husband Chris. There, I was actually going to ask you, what's the conversation around the kitchen table around that? And I wonder if that conversation's changed like now in terms of how you now view money, having taken the leap, and you're two and a half years in. Is that about right? About coming up to
1: three years in. Coming yeah.
0: to three years in. So is that conversation different in terms of? your level of expectation that those what-ifs are going to come true versus your realisation that those what-ifs are just the four in the morning?
1: Do you know what's really interesting? And this is, this is a very good question. I don't think I talk to him about it enough. Hmm. I, I, um, I, I'm I very... OK, so Chris and I always joke that we, we almost flip roles. Chris is very emotional, very open. He'll talk about things... I'm from the view, I'm, I'm quite old school, I'm quite kind of like, <laughs> pull your socks up, get on with it, you know, don't show weakness, which is ridiculous, but that's kind of how I've dealt with with you know adversity in the past. Yeah. And so I will often sit on my fears about that kind of thing and he has to coax it out of me and he will then reassure me. So mm. I don't think the conversations have changed. I think we are respectful of that fear that I have and so we make decisions now differently. You know, we don't spend in the same way that we used to. We are a bit more long term in our thinking. But I don't think that's a bad thing.
0: Well, I don't think this is a bad thing at all. But uh, I'd, yeah, I'd love to know that thing of how does your spending habit or how does your view of what you spend change? when you become an entrepreneur as opposed to knowing that there's another pay packet? It, it,
1: on a very personal level, I mean, so one of the things I, I teach and, and we teach on our workshops very heavily is about the voice in our head yeah. and we talk about how the voice in our head tends to come out when we least want it to, need it to, expect it to and we use the example of it coming out when we negotiate. I always say our biggest counterparty and most, uh, I don't know, underestimated counterparty is ourself. Um, You know, we are constantly negotiating with ourselves. And I what I do find now is I am more aware of what I'm spending. Mm. I think more about, well, if I get this, I now can't get this. Or actually, I need to make sure I've got reserves. I don't want to take that much money out of the business, whatever. Um, I probably negotiate more with myself now on a day to day basis about do I really need that? Can I wait if I really, you know, and and so I have those little mechanisms to help me.
0: I think that's healthy,
1: isn't it? I'd like to think so. Yeah, Although think when I too. stand there talking to myself in shops, it maybe <laughs> isn't that great.
0: And you started off, the part of the reason we dived into this was you saying, I'm really bad with money. So do you think you're bad with money now? Or do you feel like that change has made you good? Does that mean you're now good with money, the fact that you're thinking more longer-term? Do you
1: know what? I would rephrase it slightly. I would say, um, I don't think I'm bad with money, but I think I'm... i I have always cast myself as the person who doesn't get numbers. You know, so, mm, so even, yeah. even when I first, you know, when I first went to university, I would cast myself as, oh, you know, I'm, I'm great at standing up and speaking to a room full of people. I'm great with words. Give me a spreadsheet and it makes no sense to yeah, me. Yeah. And I kind of think I've hidden behind that over the years. And so I'm, that's the thing I will always happily delegate is numbers, be that financial projections, be that calculations on tax, be that anything I will always try and, and my 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 standard response is oh I don't get numbers and I'll pass it on to someone else as a result of that I sometimes think I will shy away from thinking too hard about it yeah that's why I say I think I'm bad with money because I think I'm bad with with the thought processes that go behind understanding things like cash flow financials everything else and so I I certainly have something that I need to do uh this year which is something I thought a lot about in the run-up to, to to the new year. I need to become more financially literate.
0: Yeah. Because yeah. it's
1: great to delegate, but if you're delegating and you still don't understand, then I think there's a problem.
0: So this is Natalie. I hope you're enjoying this one so far. We recorded this in the offices of Centrepoint, the youth homelessness charity, um, over in Oldgate in East London. And it was it just worked out really well because I was due there for a meeting a bit later on, Natalie was, I think she's coming from central London and going out further east so it was kind of on her way and they very kindly just put a room aside for us so we set up our microphones and uh, use one of their staff meeting rooms as kind of like a little studio for an hour and a half or so. And while I was there it just occurred to me that with every episode we're going to have a little middle bit and it's either going to be a sponsored content kind of thing or it will be me talking about stuff that I'm doing for the book or stuff that I've been reading or just little productivity tips and stuff about work-life balance and stuff like that and it occurred to me that why don't I make Centerpoint the sponsor for this very first show so just to return the favour for uh, giving us the meeting room uh, so I'm just giving them back the space for uh, this little middle section here. So. I'm doing that for free and I want to make that really clear because I'm on the board of Centerpoint, and there are ethics around these things. So I want to just make sure that you are very, very clear that I received no money for giving Centerpoint this little slot. Um, But I'm doing it really in the hope that you're going to go to the following website which is centerpointroom.org.uk. And I'm hoping that what you're going to do is spend a little bit less of your monthly budget on shit. And we all spend some money on shit. And spend a little bit more on sponsoring a room for Centerpoint. And in sponsoring a room, what you're not really paying for is four walls. What you're, of course, paying for is the fact that somebody no longer needs to sleep on the streets. And someone has somewhere to stay and some stability in their life. But let me get this, you know, really straight in terms of how I think Centerpoint helps young people. And that is... Yes, it's about providing a room, but it's actually much more about providing a team of people around that young person. So, you know, young people might come to Centrepoint addicted to drugs, or they might come to Centrepoint having had a really bad family situation and family breakdown. And what Centrepoint does is really helps from a whole range of different angles. So helping young people with health advice, helping young people with employability skills, helping young people to do the networking and confidence building that they need to do to be able to get into apprenticeships and into jobs and into college and university and, you know, you name it. And things that, you know, when a lot of the young people arrive at Centerpoint they're at a really low ebb, they're in a really bad place. And Centerpoint just has this knack of working out what are the things that young people really need to turn their lives around. So all I'm saying to you is spend a little bit less of your monthly money on shit and a little bit more on helping to change the life of a young person. And in a second, I'm going to hang, hand over to Peace, who uh, is someone who used to live at Centrepoint and actually now works for Centerpoint and has been directly helped and is just going to tell you her story. And the other thing to say is that the next episode of Beyond Busy, I'm going to actually be interviewing Shay Abakin, who's the chief executive of, of Centrepoint, very very inspiring guy i think you're going to get a lot from listening to him talk about how he leads a very complex and very uh, interesting organization and he's certainly someone who i think is uh, very productive and very busy all at the same time so i'm really looking forward to that conversation and to sharing that with you all but for now go to centerpointroom.org.uk and here's peace to persuade you a little bit more
2: Hi there, my name is Peace. I came to Centrepoint five years ago as a very young, vulnerable girl who suffered from extreme family breakdown. I spent most of my nights on the night bus because it's where I felt safest. I had no vision or direction about where my life was heading. Centrepoint not only gave me a roof over my head but also enabled me to chase my dreams. They helped me enrol into university to study my dream course, law, they also gave me the opportunity to work at their head office as a participation assistant, building my skills and experience further. I am now working as an advice officer for Centrepoint. In my final year of my law degree, and completely stable with positive hopes for the future. If it wasn't for Centrepoint, I wouldn't have achieved this. If you would like to help a vulnerable young person like I was five years ago, you could do so by sponsoring a room at centrepointroom.org.uk. <laughs>
0: um let's talk about so we mentioned the kitchen table there and the idea of being up at four in the morning i'd love to know about how and when you switch off and what that means to you and just the whole thing of work-life balance how do, how do you draw those lines and how does that work
1: so um the listeners- and you're
0: just for the benefit of the listeners you're kind of wincing as i, ask that <laughs> I, was, question. I was just gonna
1: say for the benefit of people listening they can't <laughs> they can't obviously see my facial expression so um, I came to a realization last year and, and, and I'll maybe just take a step back. So I do a lot of keynote speeches and speaking at conferences and I get a lot of people coming up to me afterwards and they'll say things like, that was great, but I don't know how you do it. How do you run a business? You're a mom. You're a wife. You, you know, how do you balance everything? God, I, I couldn't do that.
0: You are that classic, and it's an awful stereotype, the woman who has it all. Because there's loads of, like, there's a meme about men who have it all as well, isn't there? Which yeah. I just think is really funny. Yeah. Um, but you are that classic kind of stereotypical, you know, young son, working mum, breadwinner, successful, you know, there's all that sort of cliched stuff. Like. So,
1: well, I mean, so it's an interesting one. So people used to say that. Um, And the first thing, actually, that I had to come to terms with was I used to be very bad at taking those compliments Mm. or taking compliments. And I used to be quite dismissive and say, oh, it's easy. But then I also used to then I had a realisation of often when people have queued up to speak to you, to tell you that it's quite a big thing for someone to come and say that to someone they've just seen on the stage. So I've also committed to myself that if someone takes the time to stand and wait and say that to me, I now thank them for it. And I don't dismiss their comment because I should be grateful for their comment and the and time. And they're slightly,
0: you know, they're slightly bearing their soul course, in order to tell you that. As of well, course, so. yeah,
1: you know, and 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 then I had a realization last year, and you know, I'll be really candid. So I had a bit of a health scare last year where I was told you've got high blood pressure, you mm. need to slow down, um, you really need to do it right now. And so I remember coming back from the doctors, made a, made a number of changes uh, to my lifestyle, but. I suddenly also realized how I was having it all and I was having it all by completely neglecting myself wow. so okay. I was putting all my energy into being a mum mm. which of course you know I'm a mum I love being a mum I love my son more than anything in the world but I get constant working mother's guilt and so any free time I get I give it to Leo, and then after that Chris is next in line for any free time that I get and any energy and effort that I get. Then it's my family, then it's my friends, then it's the business. You know, so I was always nurturing everything else and I completely neglected to nurture myself. So, I wasn't investing time in exercise. I wasn't sleeping enough. Mm. I was working late every night. And part of me thrived on that working late every night, but another part of I was slowly being burnt burnt yeah. out. Yeah. And it was coming out of the doctors and being told at 34, you've got high blood pressure and you need to sort that out right now before it gets really serious. And so I, I realised I was having it all by neglecting myself. That can't happen anymore. So I immediately made some changes and I feel like I am now starting to get to grips with work-life
0: balance. Also, you delivered the book then. so. The- yes. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I'm sure many authors out there will relate to Just how much that takes over. Let's look at just about that for a few moments. So, uh, tell me about the process of writing the book.
1: So, I am... And again, you're wincing. I am (laughs) wincing. Okay, so the book was a, a, a real eye-opener for me. So, so I've written for, for, you know, since the beginning of the business, I, I've always written for some you know, fairly hefty publications. So, you know, I got published in The Guardian, I think two weeks after starting the business. I've written in The Independent, Huffington Post, Financial Times. I write a lot for clients. And I always kind of, not naively, because I knew writing a book would be different, but when I got the, the book contract in the March, I was given till the August to write it. And I thought, well, do you know what? I've got plenty of base content that I can edit and remould and take as a starting point. And, you know, that's it's a good stretch of time, I think. And I did what I thought every diligent author would do. And I put aside time every week to write. And I, my word count was, was totting up really nicely. And I was feeling really proud of, of what I'd done. Um, and then I flew out to Hong Kong on a speaking tour. And I read what i'd written in its entirety now i had been going back over those months and reading bits of it but i'd never read it in its entirety right and i read it in its entirety and i hated it (laughs) and the book that i had produced didn't sound like me didn't didn't make didn't read in the way i wanted it to Mm. it didn't even kind of deliver what we teach It, it just felt like an alien creation and I was given some really great advice um, by an editor at the Evening Standard who, when she saw me speak around the time I got the book contract, she said to me, promise me whatever you do, when you write, you write as you, because the, you know, the publishers have, have basically been inspired by you and how you talk about Such this. Such
2: good advice. Yeah. yeah, and so
1: that her advice has really stuck with me ever since, and it was when I was sat in Hong Kong reading that, her advice was ringing in my ears. And I stupidly, I now say stupidly, I read it, hated it, had a moment of anguish and then thought, this is crap. I'm starting again. And I deleted it and started again. So you
0: deleted the file. Mm -hmm. How many words? It was
1: about, it was about 58,000 words at that point. Pain. Yeah. and, And, and... it was funny because I then kind of I didn't really it didn't really sink in what yeah. I'd done because I thought well look I you know I'll just churn it out again I know what changes I want to make it didn't feel to me like it was gonna be a really big job until I got back to the UK and told my husband Chris yeah. what I'd done
2: and
0: you de- did you did you delete it in the trash and recycle I, like I completely, you said it completely deleted and,
1: it I completely deleted yeah. it and I I think now I was probably jet lagged and tired at the time <laughs> as well but I yeah. I'm an all or nothing person and and I, this is sometimes one of my downfalls that I. I either go all in or I'm all out. And that's how I live my life generally. Mm. And so I was all out on that on what I'd written. And, you know, I've wanted to be a writer since I was a kid. And I didn't want to do a bad job of it.
0: It's one of those things, isn't it, where, you know, because I'm, I have a similar, I guess you could probably look at what I spend my weeks doing and what you spend your weeks doing. And we have a similar lifestyle in that sense. We, we do talks, we yep. run a business, we do writing and everything else and out of all of those things I do feel when I sit down to write a book it's different isn't it because it just still feels like this is going to be in the British library there's something about it which is just this real almost like this is going to be what my kids are going to know Mm. about me and it's going to be the thing that everyone else will judge me by like it just feels really different doesn't it
1: yeah and I mean for me it was slightly different actually I, I get it totally what you're saying what it actually revealed to me was my sudden ability to procrastinate. <laughs> so, I, like I said, I'm an all-or-nothing person, and once I decide I'm going to do something, I do it, and I don't get distracted and I do it. Yet when I was writing this book, particularly then, because I then had to go on and write it, rewrite it in two weeks to hit deadline, right. which was another whole experience. But during that two weeks, I would sit at my laptop and the voice in my head would say to me, you should probably go uh, load the dishwasher. Now, I, if you were to ask my husband, I don't do any housework. <laughs> I don't do any, and you know that's not why we got. He married me. He keeps saying, but you know, I would. The voice in my head would go, "Why do not you go load the dishwasher?" And I would go, "Yeah, that's a really good idea." So off I'd trot and do yeah. that. Then you probably take the dog for another walk, the third of today. Yeah, all right. And I go and can do think that
0: while you walk, right? So no, you, you but you know, know, I wasn't. <laughs> and this is the point.
1: Anything, anything that would distract me, I but would you, take it. But your mind it.
0: does that persuasion bit of like. Yeah. Oh,
1: yeah but
0: you, the, the other one for me is you go, shall I make a big curry and then I can have it for the next five days (laughs) and then that way I'm investing in tomorrow (laughs) It it was a really
1: it was a real big eye opener for me in terms of how I used my time and the arguments I had with myself about what I was capable of in the time I had left Um, I don't understand why I was giving into it because I wouldn't normally yet with a book deadline hanging over me I really struggled with with managing that mm. so it's a challenge
0: so that was uh around the time last year where you had this health thing and yeah all that stuff and so in terms of what that taught you how are you sort of feeling now around you know work-life balance and just tre- and putting yourself first and giving yourself a bit of that TLC and attention and all of that?
1: Yeah, so I, I made some some just little immediate changes. Um, and, and obviously from knowing you and, and your business, I know that you subscribe to this as well. But around what I'm eating was a big one. Mm. So diet, yeah. um, I gave up caffeine. I was a complete caffeine fiend. I would have eight large coffees a day. Wow. Um, I, I I Looking back, I don't feel like I was up and down when I did not didn't have caffeine, but as soon as I came off it, which, by the way, was one of the most pain, physically oh, painful experiences, yeah. yeah. Um, I remember I felt like I had a migraine times yeah. 10. Um, but once I came off it, I suddenly realised how foggy I had felt. Mm. And I felt clear and light and bright. So that was a really big thing. I've cleaned up my diet. Just simple things like more fruit and veg, less heavy crap in my yeah. diet. Um, and... I'm, I'm carving out now time for, for doing nothing, mm. which is the thing I am the worst at. Well, when I say doing nothing, I never do nothing. I'm kind of incapable of that, I think. But I had sacrificed little things like reading a book that wasn't a business book. Yeah. I started to read fiction again. Yeah. I've started to have a bath and not be reading Harvard Business Review in the bath. I will now read a magazine <laughs> in the bath. I take the dog for a walk and leave the phone at home. I play with my son and turn off my emails. So I'm, what I I'm, realise I have to do is I have to completely separate the two. Mm. Because if there's any chance of the, of work bleeding into my personal life, it would do it very it readily. Yeah. And so I've realised that for me, it's about discipline in treating myself as a, almost as a task and, you know, that oh, oh, you know people always say, don't they, if you want to go to the gym, put it in your calendar, yeah. make an appointment. Yeah. I've adopted that mindset and it works for me. Similarly, my big New Year's resolution was to take up cycling, which for people who've known me a long time is just crazy. That yeah, I, I, don't, am I don't picture you yeah.
0: in the sort of lycra and... Uh, <laughs> yeah, well,
1: it's not quite at that well, stage yet. You know, um, with all
0: the gear and all that stuff, that doesn't seem like you.
1: Well, I, and again, I think this is the, the pragmatist in me. So I, I knew I had to exercise, and I knew that was going to be a big part of dealing with the blood pressure issue as well. And just I know that I function better when I'm, when I'm feeling healthier. Yeah. I, I do know that. So So
0: you're on your bike in Prada Heels, is that how
1: that works? Uh, not quite, no, no. I, but, I, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I'm fighting the, the luminous Lycra. But, um, I, you know, I've got all the kit and everything. But I, I realise as well I would, I, should, I would struggle to make time for the gym. Mm. So what I do know is I combine my commute. So I cycle commute now. So yeah. three days a week, I cycle to, a, to my office. It's about three and a half miles each way. And to me, that feels like a nice compromise because the exercise is serving a purpose in that I'm physically getting to work, but I'm getting more exercise than I would have done ever
0: before. Yeah. Um, let's talk about um, productivity. Like, you're obviously productive, right? So you, you've had a fantastic career as an employee. You're now an employer and an entrepreneur and... Uh, building a business what do you think is your biggest productivity secret or productivity tip
1: um i'm i'm a big list maker so every day i start my day with a review of the previous day's list and then a very strict think about what if anything i need to add to that list Um, It's almost like you've
0: read my book or something.
1: It is, it is. It's almost like that. Um, But lists, for me, really structure my thinking. Um, And I think psychologically I very much subscribe to the ability to kind of put a red line through something when you've done it. I find that incredibly satisfying. Um, And I think as well that whole idea of dedicating time to tasks. Rather than kind of trying to do everything at once, I, I like one of the things my PA and I have agreed is that certain parts of the week are blocked off for certain things so that's just to prevent me being dragged in all directions by incoming calls incoming emails I have a time well again you, you know about this for processing yep. things that are urgent things that are not so urgent um, and I find that's what works well for me I think it's about designating time and sticking to the plan while, but not being freaked out if things have to change
0: hmm. I'm going to ask you a question that where well, I'm not I hope this question makes sense but You talked earlier about the negotiation you do with yourself around Mm. money and what to buy and stuff. What's the negotiation you do with yourself around productivity and perhaps the things that are either really exciting you or making you feel guilty or fearful?
1: I think that I'm fairly clear on what I need to do in order to kind of get to the next stage, either with the business or in my career as an author or, or anything like that. But I have a real problem with letting go and I'm a bit of a control freak. Mm. And I think one of the things that holds me back from being as productive as I could be is I sometimes hang on to the stuff I shouldn't. Yeah. And that is an issue that I need to deal with in my own head, I think. I, I will very often fall into the trap. And by the way, I work with brilliant people who are more than capable. So this isn't their issue. This is my issue. I have this mindset of, oh, well, I know what I'm doing. I'll just do it. Yeah. And that's what will often then lead me to at the end of the day to go, my God, I haven't done all of this stuff. And it's because actually when I look at what I have done, it was stuff that I shouldn't be doing. And I think that's a challenge that every entrepreneur faces at some point. If you've gone from being you to them being anything bigger than that, I think that's a very hard transition to make. And I think that has a knock on effect then. That ability to let go or inability to let go for me has certainly hampered my productivity on a personal level and probably in terms of how the business has emerged to date.
0: Yeah, I I completely, completely get that. And I've had very similar things myself. And um, I think I gave you Michael Gerber's book, um, The E-Myth. Yes, yes, uh, you did. And that, I think, is brilliant for helping people see their one-man band business as... A collection of 40 people and at the beginning all of those 40 people are you but like hey there's all these different functions that need to happen and starting to see kind of you know which areas to to make that change and which mm. which areas to keep it hang on to yourself because it's where you add the value and, and stuff like that how, how is that going to change like what's your sort of uh, what's your plan with the business as it grows in terms of how to work out which bits you're not going to do anymore apart from the numbers which we know can <laughs> outsource
1: yeah, I mean, I think um, I think it's about me taking a rigorous look at really what I, what do I need to be doing, rather than what do I think I should be doing or feel like I should be doing. Mm. And I, I think that kind of assessment, I, you know, we we've started to do that, but I don't think we've done it enough. Um, I I still very feel, much feel like you know the classic entrepreneur, finger in every pie. You know, I know every part of my business. Um, I think it's about now identifying people who can take over whole functions and I need to just step away from them in in their entirety and there are you know there are certainly models that I've seen elsewhere that I think work really well Um, but for me I really just need to make sure that I'm bold enough to do that and it's a fear thing again you know because there is always that fear isn't there of oh, well, if it's not me doing this, how can I control it? Mm. And it comes back to control. And I think I need to think about why I hang on like that. And, yeah. But it's about identifying the right people and then identifying what I can give to them and why.
0: And being bold and letting go of the control, what is it that you want to control? Is it the size of the business? Is it the quality? Like, what's the, what's the fear around what is giving you that sense of needing to control it?
1: Um... <laughs> It's hard to say, really. I think it's quality. I, I think that's the issue. I mean, mm. I really pride i, I really pride myself, and this, particularly when I started out, I was really proud of the quality of the product that we offered. Also, the impact that we gave to people. You know, giving people the ability to negotiate, and I'm sure it's the same, in fact, with productivity yeah. when you train on productivity yeah. – it can change people's whole outlook it can change their quality of life even you know the training we give people impacts the salary that they get paid their free time their flexibility what commission or bonus they get at the end of the year you know and you're changing lives and Mm. for me I never want us to become a kind of off the shelf transactional learning provider that does you know just sells to clients rather than partnering with them and so I think for me it's with growth comes the fear of a diminishing quality. Yeah. And that's what I think holds me back sometimes. But I also know that there are people around me who have the same passion around quality. And so, again, it comes back to me and my ability to be able to say, do you know what, I trust you to know that the quality is right.
0: Mm. So. And also, I mean, the way you guys are pitched as a business, like, it's a it's a premium product, right? Yes. So- do you do you feel an extra responsibility around that in terms of people are paying a lot of money for this, and so better be good, you know? Or, or is it more just that how that impacts on people's lives? Like, what's the where, where where does that pressure come from?
1: I think it's both angles, and I, mm. I think you're absolutely right. Um, we are a premium, you know, we we charge a premium price. What we deliver to people will make companies more profitable. There, there's no mm. way around yeah. that. And there is a lot of negotiation training out there that's very formulaic and it's basically stand at the front, load of slides, lecture. That's not what we're about. If that's what people want, we will say you should go and get you that. You get what you pay
0: for. You, that's what yeah, we say as well. <laughs> yeah, you know, you
1: get what you pay for. Um, yeah. But at the same time, whilst that is something, you know, we want to make sure that the quality is there because of that, but I also think it's about credibility. Mm, you know, um, I can't stand up and say, look, I think we are a leading provider of negotiation training if we're not you know and so quality is really big for me because of that but I Mm. think at the same time that's what makes me hang on to a lot of stuff that I probably shouldn't.
0: I'm going to just ask you a couple of other big questions just to finish so I'd love to know what is and this can be not just around the business but just sort of personally what's your biggest fear?
1: I think my biggest fear would be It's twofold would be losing my family mm. on a very kind of big level um, and <laughs> losing my family or being really reliant on other people that sounds really weird Ooh, but okay. what I mean by that is I like to be in control of my own yeah. destiny and I would hate to be in a position where I couldn't control what was happening to me I was reliant on someone else to provide. That's not to say, you know, if my husband landed a million pounds on the lottery, I'd be quite happy for him to provide. <laughs> but what I mean is is I like having the freedom to decide about what I'm going to do next. Mm. And I hate being restricted. And that has been true, well, as an employee, if you've got a very restrictive boss who won't let you grow, won't let you have new ideas, I really struggle with that. Um, so I think, yeah, you know, the obvious one is losing, losing family, I, you know, that would be my worst nightmare my biggest fear but after that it's about about that being controlled
0: yeah i yeah like i definitely have a similar thing around not wanting you know not wanting to be a burden on people yes. and not and just wanting to be in control of like dealing with my own shit you mm-hmm, know and mm-hmm. whether that's like sort of paying the mortgage or whether that's i also just have this fear of like when you walk through a train station and it's really busy like if you're in the way like I hate (laughs) just the idea of sort of inconveniencing other Mm -hmm. people in some way which is kind of it's kind of crazy when you look at um you know then how just how how much good stuff happens when people are generous to each other right and how many people you're generous to and how many how that sort of goes around and what a sort of better world that makes you know when you get into those kind of uh, situations remember being on the tube during the olympics and kind of realizing how everybody was helping each other out and being yeah. really nice and it was London just seemed like a much nicer place to be, right? But I think it's, that's a really interesting one for me, that whole sort of wanting to, uh, n- just wanting to be in control and not wanting to be in any way an inconvenience or a burden to people. You see,
1: for me, for me it's very much the financial angle as well. Mm. So actually, you know, my, my mum, who is a wonderful, brave, brilliant woman who worked bloody hard to raise me and my brothers... Spent many years, as we growing up, apologising to us because we couldn't go on school trips. We didn't right. have all the yeah. new stuff. And, you know, it didn't bother us. You know, actually, it didn't bother us. I think it's made me and my brothers who we are today. And, you know, my mum is, is fierce and brilliant and fantastic. You know, we don't judge her for that. We never, ever would. But I would hate for I would hate to have to be apologizing to Leo for not being able to provide for him mm. and this is where the whole financial security yeah, thing completely. comes in as well so for me it's about that reliance on others I would I would hate for people to be having to prop me up in any mm. way
0: um, and then final question is what does happiness and success mean to you
1: well it's funny because I feel quite happy and quite successful mm. in fact I feel very happy and very successful 99% of the time, um, what do they mean to me? So for me, happiness is about knowing that my friends and family are happy and safe and loved and healthy and well looked after. But happiness is also for me about freedom. So it comes yeah. again back to this reliance yeah. thing. Um, I'm happy when I'm happy when I can make decisions. I can go and explore new things I can make new connections I can travel all of those things make me make me very very happy but also so does knowing that the bills are paid each month yeah you on a very basic level and to me actually being successful is about knowing the bills are paid each month and I've got a little bit extra to be able to do the things that make me happy
0: uh, if people want to find out more about you and about the book just tell us how they reach you how they they connect with
1: you okay so um i'm on twitter um adv spring ceo um or our website www.advantagespring.com or on linkedin um and the book is called we have a deal it's published by icon books on the 3rd of march and there are details of that on my website or on my twitter feed
0: so thanks again to Natty Reynolds for being our first ever guest on Beyond Busy and it was perhaps a little bit of a risk having somebody who you know really really well being the first guest and on some level maybe not maybe some level it's like you know you're trying to learn how to use the equipment you're trying to learn how to be a good interviewer or conversationalist or whatever you want to call it and and kind of you know in that being in that role of the person who has to sort of steer the conversation. And I really felt like I was muddling along with both of those tasks. So maybe it was quite good that I didn't have to also build rapport and be conscious of trying to meet somebody new and get to know them really quickly at the same time. But then I was just really conscious of that whole thing of, you know, people have like a different uh, sort of professional persona than than they do personal and just being really aware of that. And I I, I was trying to in the lead up to pressing record and in the few days before the interview, just try and really make the interview safe for Natalie by saying things like, you know, well, we don't have to talk about things that you don't want to talk about and we'll edit stuff out that you think you're oversharing and just, just really conscious that, you know, talking about your money worries and your health and stuff like that is, um, there's just a risk attached to that. And I think there's, um, uh, I'm sure I will come across people who are just very reluctant to go to some of those places. And it, do you know what? I just really didn't have to worry about that with Natalie at all. She was so open and honest and just credit to her really for bringing her whole self to the interview. I thought it was just very refreshing and very authentic and very Natalie. And um, I learned loads from it. So so thanks again to Natalie for, for being part of it. And there were some bits in there that really stuck out for me. The whole hour of the wool, 4, 4am 4 kind of money worries stuff I thought was was really pertinent. And... I think one thing that it perhaps helped me to clarify, just listening to Natalie talk, was the whole thing around overcoming fears. You know, people have this uh, thing that in order to make something happen, you've you've got to overcome your fear. And I think sometimes that's not true. I think sometimes you either have to find a bigger fear that becomes more interesting, or you have to find some way of distracting yourself from that fear. And it kind of feels like having a calling to put something out there into the world often is the thing that overcomes that, that fear of pressure and judgment and all the, all the reasons that people find not to try and do something. So that was really interesting to me. And I hope you found some value in, in Natalie's uh, really interesting stories and, you know, amazing experiences. And if you want to find out more about Natalie's work, uh, the book is called We Have a Deal. And her website is advantagespring.com. Um, Thanks also to, uh, as I said in the middle, Centerpoint for giving us uh, a meeting room to do the interview in. And also thanks to Mark Stedman, who is my producer on the show from Bloomsbury Digital. And Bloomsbury Digital have been really helpful in just really helping me to realise the sort of creative uh, vision of what I'm trying to achieve with Beyond Busy. So Mark's been just very helpful with uh, picking the theme music and just really helping me with... Some of the structuring and some of that sort of stuff. So, um, so thanks to Mark, and um, Mark will be uh, heavily involved in this project. I think as it as it as it continues. So, if you've enjoyed it, what I'd love you to do is subscribe. So, please subscribe via iTunes, via wherever you're listening to this, uh, to the Beyond Busy feed. We'll be putting out a podcast every couple of weeks, and I'd love you to just tell your friends and help us build the audience and spread the word. And what I'm hoping is by the end of this process i have a whole bunch of people who are interested in discussing ideas around how do people define happiness and success and how do we achieve a good work-life balance and good productivity in the work that we do so please do spread the words and also finally if you have uh, somebody who you think could be a really great guest for beyond busy i'd love you to email me uh, so the idea is to have a really wide range of people I'm not just going to have thought leaders and CEOs. I'm going to have a really wide range of people who, either people who I think have a really good work-life balance and really have it all cracked, and really people who I feel are just like annoyingly happy in their world, uh, or people who I feel like are just constantly, no matter how skilled and amazing they are, just constantly just going round on the hamster wheel and never getting anywhere. Uh, so if you, you know, if you feel like you know someone who might fit the bill there and might be a really good Uh, might just really give good conversation for Beyond Busy, then just drop me an email. It's graham at thinkproductive.co.uk. Would love to hear from you. If you haven't checked out my book, it's How to Be a Productivity Ninja. You can find it in all good bookshops and Amazon and all that sort of stuff. And if you want to find out more about this podcast, please go to getbeyondbusy.com. That's getbeyondbusy.com. So thanks for listening and thanks for giving me an hour of your most precious resource, which is not your time, it's your attention. So it's been an honour having your attention over the last hour. I hope you're going to subscribe. I hope you can listen to many more episodes of this and I'll see you for episode two.